Colossians chapter 3, verses 22, uh, up to chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Over the past couple of years, some of the books that I've read have touched on the same theme. This was not on purpose. I didn't choose to follow this theme, but in some of the books I've read, this theme of slavery has come up repeatedly. A couple years ago, I finally read uh, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, a very troubling and very inspiring book. Uh, He was an escaped slave who became a uh, crusader in the abolitionist cause. Uh, More recently, I read Julius Caesar's commentaries of the Gallic War, and I didn't think that was going to be about slavery, but Julius Caesar was proud of his mercy. He was legendary for his mercy, and so sometimes instead of massacring entire populations, he would merely sell them into slavery. And that seemed to be a very common thing, and that was considered to be the more merciful thing to do. Uh, More recently, I also read a book uh, by Isabel Wilkerson called Caste, which is uh, about what she calls the caste system in the United States, which flowed out of the slavery that was practiced here. And recently, I just picked up a book. I'm reading it now, uh, Ada Ferrer's. It just came out this year. It's uh, called Cuba, an American History. And I'm just to the point where finally, decades after slavery was abolished in the United States, it was was still thriving and was practiced there with a lot of complicity of people from the United States states both north and south. And I I wasn't trying to read books about slavery, but but the fact that in all of these books, it just keeps coming out, pressed on me a couple of realities about this institution. One is its prevalence throughout human history, and two, its typical cruelty when one human being has uh, basically absolute authority over other human beings. It's therefore both natural And at the same time, disconcerting when we come across references, matter-of-fact type references to slavery in the New Testament. Now, because of that, instead of just going right to the text, it maybe is appropriate to say a few words, kind of preliminary considerations about this question of slavery and the Bible. Slavery has existed throughout human history, continues to exist around the world, There are uh, organizations that are fighting it. There are an estimated 30 or up to 40 million slaves in our world today. So it hasn't gone away. And uh, but of the three household relationships that are here, this is the only one that is not permanent. This is the only one that can be abolished, that can be changed. We've looked at marriage. We've looked at family. And now this was a a, a typical relationship in the household of the day, but this is not a creation institute. This is not something that God set up at the beginning as he did marriage and family, and so this can be changed. 
Now, efforts sometimes to downplay how terrible slavery has been for the slaves are often unhistorical. When you really look at the record, uh, it is hardly ever, although it's possible, but hardly ever a benevolent institution. Roman slavery, Roman slavery, which is what we're dealing with here, was usually an economic or a military instrument. When, uh, when populations were conquered, they were, as I mentioned with Julius Caesar and others, they were sold into slavery. Now, it was not, and this is something that's, that's hard for us perhaps to understand, but it was not race-based. It wasn't uh, this population, because of their race, should be enslaved. It's no, this population, because we just conquered them, they are, that's, that's the price of being conquered. It's becoming a slave. Now, the fact that slavery existed during the New Testament times does not mean that, and the fact that we find it in the New Testament doesn't mean that the New Testament supports slavery. Rather, it was simply a fact of existence in the day with up to, there are different estimates, but up to 40% of the population of uh, the Roman Empire in those days consisted of slaves. And so it's not surprising that we find this institution referred to in the New Testament. Even so, even so, there are references in Paul, and Paul and Timothy wrote this letter to the Colossians, but in other places in Paul's writings, there are references to slavery that indicate a negative attitude toward it. For example, we're going to meet a man named uh, Onesimus later in this letter, and there's a, a letter about Onesimus. It's called Philemon. It was sent along with this letter, and in that letter, there is at least an indirect petition for the release of Onesimus by his Christian master, once Onesimus had become a Christian. Uh, also, Paul in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-one, he encouraged slaves, if they could gain their freedom, to try to do it. In 1 Corinthians 7.23, he said not to become slaves. He told Christians, uh, avoid becoming slaves of others. And then in 1 Timothy 1.10, there is a specific prohibition of man-stealing, that is, of enslaving people, kidnapping people to make them slaves. Now, the New Testament worked with two important facts, and we'll, we'll think about these two important facts, and then we'll get to the text today. The two important facts were these. One is a practical fact, and the other is a theological one. The practical fact is this. As subjects of the Roman Empire, Christians did not have political power. So if we ask, why didn't they start a campaign to deal with this social ill or that social ill, that wasn't a possibility in their day. You're basically asking them, well, you're asking the question, why didn't they live in the 19th century in a democratic republic? Uh, they did not have a political voice, per se, and so we ought not to accuse them of doing something that they could not do. There were no movements to abolish slavery in the Roman Empire. There were none. The only serious efforts were slave revolts, which ended predictably in the massacre of those who participated in the revolt. So those were basically the options. Now, that's the, that's the, the practical fact. The, the theological fact is this. The church's calling is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is about. The church's calling is not to reform society directly. And if we look at, at, at history, church history, when the church began to take on social causes as its mission, it often took its eye off the ball 
of its unique mission. So when the church begins to take on other missions to reform society directly, then the church often loses sight of the, the, the one thing that the church is called to do and the, the thing that only the church can do. Generally, that's the case. Now, having said that, though, having said that, what do Christ's disciples do in the world? So the church's job is to make disciples, but what do those disciples do? Those disciples go out into the world and can and often do have an incredible effect on the society and have brought about some amazing reforms of unjust institutions in society. Um, One example that we have from the early church is the question of the exposure of infants. Uh, We practice abortion in our Western world, well, all around the world, really, today. In those days, they dealt with unwanted infants, oftentimes by exposing them. They didn't actively kill them, but they left them to die being exposed to the elements or sometimes horribly being eaten by dogs. And that was just a common practice in the day. Well, Christians obviously did not practice that. And Christians, in their statements that they would make, public statements, they would say, this is wrong. And and then they did something else as well. They went to the places where these children were abandoned, and they took them, and they adopted them, and they cared for them. And they eventually had hospitals for foundlings for uh, for these children that were abandoned, and they took them and adopted them and raised them as their own. And so they did something about it as Christians in society, and then centuries later, two or three centuries later, it eventually was abolished as, the, as Christianity had, had had an influence in society, and some of the emperors themselves were Christians or at least amenable to Christianity. So they didn't start a campaign and say the church's job is to stop this horrible practice. Rather, they did something as Christians in society about it, which eventually led to its uh, abolition. So that's, that's the kind of the general situation we're dealing with here. Now let's get to the text. And in this text, we have the same sort of structure. It's addressed first to slaves and then to masters. And the slaves get a longer, a longer section than any of the other folks addressed here. And it's remarkable. This is the first thing we ought to notice because there's something remarkable here. And that is that slaves were addressed here. Slaves were addressed as full members of the Christian church and as responsible agents, responsible moral agents in the Christian church. This is, this is fascinating, that they, when they walked through the doors of the church, they were members just like everyone else. And this is, this is a radical, uh, radical position to take. In society, they might have been subject to their masters, but when they walked through the doors of the church, they were equal church members. They were brothers and sisters. We already read in chapter 3, verse 11, here, here in the kingdom of God, here in this renewed humanity, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So that's the first remarkable thing. Slaves, bondservants, they were addressed here. They were full members of the church. And their instruction was to obey their earthly masters and to serve them sincerely from the heart. Now, this, uh, this instruction 
is probably not too surprising. Uh, the, uh, the obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, you might say, well, that further crushes them. Uh, it's telling them, you slaves, you're, you're, you're under subjection to your masters. And so we as the church, we're telling you also to obey them. But actually, actually, if we think about this, it dignifies them because there are two types of work that are contemplated here. There is sincere work from the heart because of a heart motivation. And there is what Paul and Timothy call eye service, eye service. And it looks like they may have made up that that uh, that expression, eye service, uh, eye service as people pleasers. So what what Paul and Timothy are saying is you have a job to do. You've been told, uh, given a job to do work at that job from the heart with internal motivation sincerely. And what does that do? That makes the slave in part master of his own work. If you would go to the slave and say, why are you working so hard today? And the slave says, I'm working hard because I want to. Now, we'll see the motivation. But if he says, I'm working hard because I want to, that slave is taking possession of his own labor and doing it for himself. That contrasts with the eye servant, the one who slacks off all day long until the master comes along. What has that slave done? That slave has put himself completely, entirely under the master, and he is completely controlled by the master because he spends his whole day looking to see if the overseer is watching out. And so really, although this looks like further oppression, it's actually, <clears throat> it's actually liberating the slave and saying, you work from the heart, and that's possible for you to work from the heart sincerely. And the reason is the motivation. And it's, this motivation changes the game here. The motivation is repeated three times in this instruction. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Three times he says the same thing. Three times. You are serving the Lord. You are serving the Lord. You are serving the Lord. And there's a, there's a play here that we don't get. And in the translations, it makes sense for us because, because when we think of the word Lord, if we're not in Britain, we think of, of God. We think of Jesus. And that, that's generally the, the meaning in the New Testament. Uh, and then we think of master, we think of slave master, but it's the same word here. And so there's a distinction here. In verse 20, 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your lords according to the flesh. Your lords according to the flesh. Uh, and so they are your lords, but they're only lords according to the flesh. And then he says, fearing the Lord, serving the Lord, receiving a a reward from the Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. So this is, a, this is putting the earthly lords in their place. And it is reminding them ultimately whom they serve. They serve the Lord Christ. Now, because of the great difficulty of their lives, maybe that's why the three, threefold reminder here. 
of whom they're serving ultimately. And of course, their lives were, were very difficult, sometimes involved great suffering. But they're reminded here three times, you're serving the Lord, you're serving the Lord, you're serving the Lord. And that's how it would be possible for even slaves to serve from their heart, willingly, sincerely. Now, also it says, because they were servants of the Lord, they would receive their inheritance as a reward from whom? From the Lord. Now, this is a specific contrast because slaves in the Roman Empire could not receive inheritances. But here he's saying, but don't worry about that. That little inheritance from which you've been excluded here because there's a bigger inheritance and you will get that inheritance from the Lord. That's the Lord Christ. And then there's this ominous, ominous reminder, which is stated generally, but I think it's clear at whom it's directed. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer doesn't say who that is. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, it may be directed to the slave. Slave, don't do wrong yourself. But it, it also is probably a reminder to the slave saying, don't worry about your master. If your master does wrong, you have no power to address that at this point. But there is one who is not awed by your master there is a Lord who is not awed by your Lord according to the flesh, and with him there is no partiality, and he will pay back. And so this is a reminder to the slave that there is a just judge who will make all things right. That's the instruction to the slaves. The instruction to the masters, and this may unsettle us maybe even more. It's remarkable that the slaves were full members of the church, but we might wonder how is it that there were masters who were members of the church as well? Uh, that may unsettle us, and we might say, well, why didn't they just release their slaves immediately if they, when they became Christians? But once again, a practical consideration is that immediate manumission of the slaves would have turned them out into the streets without any possibility or very little possibility of being integrated into the society. And so that would be a, a cruelty on top of a, a generally unjust institution. So the better situation was for the masters to learn how to treat their slaves. And that's the instruction here. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. The word here is equitably. And that's, that's a, a, a surprising word, equitably, as an equal situation. And, and so it's saying, masters, you also... Owe to your slaves, knowing that you also have a master. And here, once again, the words are all lords. Lords, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a Lord in heaven. Now, there's not a great deal of instruction to, to the masters, but we need to remember this is the third time they're getting addressed. They've been addressed as husbands. They've been addressed as fathers. And now they're being addressed as masters. And so this text altogether is emphasizing that the greater the authority, the greater the responsibility. You see, normally you think about the greater the authority, the greater the privilege. But this text puts the greater responsibility on those who have the greater authority. Now, um, with regard to the slaves, the master should treat them justly and fairly. This may sound like simple, humane advice. But it undercuts the idea, it undercuts the idea that the masters are sovereign, absolute authority over their slaves. 
it is placing over the masters a, a standard of justice, of equitability, of, of fairness. And then there's a motivation for them. And it's actually the same motivation for the masters as it is for the slaves. You have a master in heaven. It's the same reminder to the masters as to the slaves, but the tone is different, isn't it? To the, to the slaves, it's saying, this is whom you really serve. You have a master in heaven, and he will take care of you. He will give you a reward, and he will pay back those who abuse you. To the masters, that was to the slaves, to the masters, it sounds more ominous, doesn't it? It's a reminder that you are not the top here. You may feel like it in this situation in which you find yourself, but you are not the top here. You, if you are a Christian master, you have a master in heaven, so don't forget that. This is a, a reminder and perhaps an in, in, at least indirect warning to them. Now, you might hear this and say, what does this have to do with us? Because we can be thankful we don't have this institution legally in our country anymore. What does this have to do with us? Well, it actually has a great deal to do with us because we often, throughout our lives, find ourselves in jobs with bosses, and we find ourselves in jobs that we don't like and we can't change. And so we have two options. When we find ourselves in these job situations that we don't like and we can't change, and they may be unjust and they may be abusive, but for whatever reason, economic or otherwise, we are stuck in these jobs. We need to do these jobs. So we have two options. We, need, we can either complain, we can slack off, we can criticize, we can justify ourselves and say, well, if they paid me more, I would do my job. If my boss would treat me better, I would do my job. If our, our rules of our company were better, then I would do my job. And so what are we becoming? We're becoming man-pleasers. We're becoming eye-servants. Well, I'll do my job when the supervisor comes around, but until they pay me more, I'm not going to do what I've signed on to do. That's one thing we could do, and we could probably justify ourselves, but that's not the attitude of the Christian laborer. If we find ourselves in this sort of a labor situation that we don't like and can't change, the other option is to serve the Lord, to remind ourselves day by day that this job, with all of its is difficult and onerous tasks, with all of its unjust arrangements, is a calling from the Lord for me at this point. And I can take this as from the Lord, and I can direct my service to the Lord and do my job from the heart. You see, we need to remember that this is the general goal, not for slaves, but for Christians. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's in these sort of situations when we find ourselves in these kind of jobs, labor situations, when we're really tested about whether we believe what we say we believe or not, whether we're living to try to make our best life now, or if we really believe that there is a Lord in heaven who will reward us for our labor that we are giving to him in whatever job situation we find ourselves. Other times in life, we find ourselves with authority over other people. We find ourselves in superior labor positions and people answer to us. And if you've ever been in one of those, you find out very quickly that the people who answer to you 
are difficult. And they make your life difficult. And probably if you have gone up the ladder and you were down here and you were under people and now you're over here, sometimes you probably wistfully think about, you know, I'd really like to go back to where I was because it's a lot more difficult to manage people than it is just to do the job that I've been given to do. So if you find yourself in that position with authority over others and they're difficult and they slack off and they're critical and they don't do their job and they cut corners and they make your life difficult by complaining, then you could probably justify to yourself unjust treatment of them. You could say, well, if they treat me like that, I'm going to treat them like that. Or you could say, no, wait, I have a Lord in heaven. I'm not the Lord here. I'm not the the top man here, the top woman here. There is a Lord in heaven, and I serve him. And I need to treat these who are under me justly and fairly and equitably. I've been troubled at times when I see how quickly Christians want our God to be identified with the winners in the world. Um, Whenever a politician kind of glances in our direction, whenever a famous entertainer says something positive about Jesus, whenever uh, an athlete points to the sky after a touchdown or a, a home run or something like that, and I'm not saying those are bad things, but whenever that happens, we're very, very quick to adopt those people as our spokesmen and as our spokeswomen. And why that impulse? Why do we want these these beautiful people? Why do we want to identify with them? I think it's because we want to say, you see, our God's a God of winners. Our God's a God of successful people. Our God's a God who, who, who really loves people like this, who shine and who succeed. But when we come to the scriptures, we have a shocking fact here. And that's that our God is a God of slaves. Read the Old Testament. What did he do? He took a people out of slavery. And he's not embarrassed about the fact. In fact, read the the rest of the Old Testament from Exodus on. God is, is pounding the drum, reminding the people what they once were. We read it in our Old Testament today. You were once slaves and you're my people. What's he saying? He's boasting to the nations. I'm the God of slaves. And then we come to the New Testament and we find that everybody, everybody was sold into slavery. Everybody was enslaved to our sins. And God doesn't pass over us and say, I don't want people like that around. I don't want those kind of people calling on me. I don't want to be identified with them. On the contrary, he says, those are the people I came for. I'm the God of those who are enslaved to sins. And then we get to this situation in the New Testament where A great portion of the population were slaves. And here once again, on the pages of the New Testament, slaves, members of the church, part of the people of God. We have a God who delights to be the God of slaves. And perhaps that's not so remarkable because he himself, the Lord in heaven, became one. He became one. He who existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form 
Our translations say servant. It's the same word. He took on the form of a slave. And being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to death and even death on a cross. Did you get that? The Lord of heaven, this Lord that we're talking about here, this Lord of heaven became a slave. And why did he become a slave? To rescue slaves, to bring us out of slavery, and to call us his own. That text that I'm quoting from Philippians goes on and says, Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. So the Lord of heaven became a slave and then was exalted as Lord of all. The name, the highest name, to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But you know why he took that journey? He came down, the Lord of heaven, to become a slave so that he might be exalted and take a host of slaves with him. All of those who bow the knee before Jesus, all of those who confess him as Lord, all of those who trust in him, he takes us with him. And he says, these, these have I redeemed. These have I rescued. These have I bought out of slavery. They are mine. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for being the God of slaves. Lord, we, we thank you that you were willing to identify with us, that you descended to the lowest point, to be exalted to the highest and to take us with you, to rescue your people of old out of slavery in Egypt, to rescue us out of slavery to our sins. And we pray, O oh God, that as we former slaves, having been made your people, that you would enable us to live our lives remembering what we were, what you did for us, and that in our treatment of others, whether they be our bosses or our employees, wherever they might be in the pecking order of society, that they would be our equals, that we would treat them as your image. And if they're yours, that we would treat them as brothers and sisters. And that no matter what oppressive situations might exist in our world, that in our church, in our churches, that we would see that, that God is the God of the lowly, that Christ is the one who redeems slaves. And Lord, as you send us out into our various places, as we are employees and as we are bosses, as we are citizens and have the opportunity to affect our society, we pray that we would be salt, that we would be light, that we would make a difference as Christians in the world, discipled in your church, sent out to transform the world.